recording live today in Old Man Corcoran's picturesque cemetery shed. This is so awesome. I'm geeking out. Oh, man, there's even some chopped wood lying around. And his axe? And, and no, no, that can't be. Wait a minute. Is this the harmonica of Old Man Corcoran himself? It's gotta be, right? Let me run into town and check with Kiki on this. She'll know if it's the real deal. Alright, sounds good. I'll finish setting up for the pod. Haha, <laughs> very funny, Matt. Cut it out. Ollie ollie oxen free. Ollie ollie oxen free. Okay, what's going on here? Ollie ollie oxen free. Ollie ollie oxen free. Who's there? Give me my harmonica. Welcome to the Nostalgic Millennial Podcast, where we will nerd out over the shows, movies, books, games, and more that made us who we are today. Prepare yourself for a return to the 1990s on the Nostalgic Millennial Podcast. Welcome back, everyone, to our next Are You Afraid of the Dark episode. That's right. Today we will be tackling Old Man Corcoran, which is the season two, episode 13 of Are You Afraid of the Dark? This is a little bit different because it's a Kiki story. We have not done one that was told by Kiki yet, so this will be uh, a little bit of a switch up from some of the other storytellers. Now, I will point out that this was originally released in October, October 2nd of 1993, so this is a big, big throwback to a Halloween month episode. As it so happens, we are kicking off our Halloween content a little bit early this year, This episode should be releasing at the end of August, which means that we are already going to be going into the Halloween season, and we have a whole lineup for the month of September, October, and even the beginning of November. So you guys can dig in with us into all of this great fall and Halloween era type content. I'm pretty excited. Paul, what do you think? Are you ready for... Old Man Corcoran. Tale of Old Man Corcoran is a great way to kind of get started into the Halloween season as a little precursor. You have really good scenic environments here. You're in a graveyard with fog everywhere and the dark. So it's a really good way to kind of get started with it. And this episode, honestly, it was just, it was one I'd always remembered existing. Always the idea of this graveyard, this this old man playing hide and go seek. And I was kind of in the back of my mind. I didn't remember the actual specifics of the tale itself, nor the twist here. So it was still kind of cool to go back and and relive everything. But this was a fun episode to do, and I'm glad we picked it. I actually remember watching this for the very first time, just sort of hanging out uh, with one of my friends. We were just channel surfing, sitting on the couch in my living room. And this was one I had not seen yet at that time. Uh, It could have been that it had just aired. I mean, I don't even remember exactly what year it was when I first saw it. But I remember being really impressed with this one. You know, as a kid in particular, 
I thought it was so creepy. The environment is super creepy. Old man Corcoran himself. And just the whole idea of it being set in the graveyard, it was very scary. So there's a lot here that is a sort of fundamental to Halloween and, and sort of the spooky season of the year starting to roll in, much like the fog rolling in over the cemetery. But before we get into the introduction, uh, the Midnight Society scene of the episode, we're going to go back back to the 1990s. So in this segment, I will be discussing the movies, music, video games, TV, and books that were popular around this time. This is not meant to be a definitive list. I go through, I try to find things that seem interesting. Normally the things that are at the tops of the charts. There's plenty other of, you know, uh, different bits of media that might not be included, but the whole point is to get us into the vibe of October 2nd, 1993. So without further ado, top films. We have Demolition Man, Cool Runnings, and The Nightmare Before Christmas, released on the 10th this month, so not too long after the episode. For music, we have Mariah Carey at the top of the charts with Dream Lover. We also have Right There by Human Nature and Whoop There It Is by Tag Team. In the video game department, if you lived in Japan, this was the month that Shining Force 2 was released, which of course for us is a big, big deal. If you lived in Europe, Sonic CD was released. And unfortunately, the Wand of Gamelon, The Legend of Zelda, was released for the Philips CDI which is notoriously the one of the worst Zelda games ever made. The last game that I noted here is Virtua Fighter. I definitely was a fan of that back in the day. Then we've got our TV shows, 60 Minutes, Home Improvement, Seinfeld, Roseanne, Coach, Frasier, all kinds of good stuff here. Finally, with books, I try to sort of stick more toward kid books if I can, the Night of the Living Dummy from Goosebumps was released. Classic uh, character of Slappy being introduced. Also the book The Giver, uh, which I remember reading in school by Lois Lowry. And then this one, not a kid's book, but it's relevant to us today. A book in the Witcher series called The Last Wish was released. Paul, does any of this stuff ring a bell? Well, oddly enough, we had just discussed prior to this episode, Nightmare Before Christmas, and the idea that we are going to be covering it this year, so get excited for that. Spoilers, uh, I guess spoilers, <laughs> wow. All right, everyone just got a nice sneak peek into another part of our year we have coming up. Yeah, I know, a uh, little Patreon-exclusive typical, typically content here, but yeah, we can decide and, and settle the debate whether or not Nightmare Before Christmas is a Halloween movie or a Christmas movie? Because we kind of put it smack dab in there, but we'll we'll save those thoughts for that release. Video game-wise, you had mentioned Virtual Fighter. That hits so hard because basically there's so many different fighting games that I've played over the years. And in terms of nostalgia, obviously, you go to any type of arcade, they're going to have Street Fighter. Are you a Street Fighter guy or not? They had Mortal Kombat. That was probably the biggest, at least in the arcade. I think kids really love the gore and blood, honestly. So I think that was probably the most popular. And then you even had Tekken as kind of like an outlier that would be kind of picked up upon. 
And then in the, I remember our, the arcade I had gone to, Aladdin's Castle. I talked about it in the Pinball Wizard episode in the corner, Virtual Fighter. And it was, and no one played it. I basically played it by myself because it's basically the, the characters are really blocky and pixelated. And so the graphics aren't even that good, but it was so cheap. I mean, it was like a quarter to play, one token to play, as opposed to all these other games, there's no line. So that's the game that I consistently was gravitating towards. I mean, I loved it, and I didn't actually like Mortal Kombat that much, which I guess was strange for that time period. I did like Virtua Fighter. It sort of had this sort of 3D type of vibe to it, which I thought was cool. Regarding a lot of these TV shows, we've seen a similar list in other episodes, but in the video game category, Legend of Zelda, The Wand of Gamelon, if you don't know about this... Nintendo licensed the Zelda IP to Philips, and Philips had put out this new game system, the Philips CDI, and they made, I believe, three different Zelda games for the CDI, and they are just notoriously horrible, just almost unplayable. And if you have not watched actually if I'll, I'll give a shout out right here to the angry video game nerd i was gonna ask um, you if he covered it <laughs> he has if you have not watched his episode I'm going to after this uh, recording for sure definitely definitely do look up the Philips cdi zelda and you will you'll see what i mean i'll just leave it at that yeah so some big stuff here shining force 2 of course my favorite game of all time so this is an amazing year honestly 1993 I mean, Hocus Pocus was released this year. So again, huge thing for me. So I feel like 93 was super influential just in my life in general. Well, you had mentioned also The Last Wish, which again, Witcher, obviously I'm a huge fan of the video games. I think most people probably know it from that, but obviously it was a huge book series in Poland prior to this. And everyone talks about The Last Wish as kind of like the penultimate of the witcher books if they say hey you know i want to i want to read the source material go to the last wish so i it's something i've kind of avoided because to me the witcher video games are lore that's what i go by and that's because that's how i was introduced to the series and really anything that goes against that kind of makes me angry and so everyone even with the netflix show talking about hey go to the source material it's like my source material is the video game so go to witcher 3 wild hunt <laughs> even if that's not technically what the book said like that's that's the lore that got everyone into the witcher series as popular as it is so stick to that and the parts of the netflix show that i like are you know Geralt being a witcher and and seeking the monster and fighting the monster with that story behind it and it, it's usually like maybe in once every four episodes for about 15 minutes, kind of like the bloody Baron quest and wild hunt. That to me is what this whole show should have been about, but they're going all these side missions with all the, with all the sorceresses and stuff and the politics. And I was like, I have no interest in any of that because I'm the video game guy. So I, I would have liked to see a Netflix show more based on that. But for all I know, I'm sure the last wish is really good for all the different lore and politics and other character development that maybe did make it into the video game. So I've read the Witcher books and I will tell you, if you do not like the politics and the sorceresses, do not read the books. Just, just don't <laughs> you, you will not <laughs> like them. Um, I, I honestly, my favorite way that I have experienced the Witcher, having read the books, watched the show up to this point anyway, 
and played the games, not just Witcher 3, but Witcher 2. Also um, a great game. Also a great game. Honestly, I do prefer the games. I think it translates very well into just a video game medium. So I think it just works well in the interactivity of a video game. I, I think it works really well for it. And so lots of good stuff this year. So hopefully now you feel a little bit like you can remember. Maybe I sort of brought up some memories of a name of a show or a movie from back in the day. And hopefully you are now ready to enter into the Midnight Society Old Man Corcoran. Well, 1993 is especially apt for this because, you know, we're around six years old at this time. Our listeners, probably kids by and large. If you're not, you know, you're never too old to play hide and go seek. And so that's really the the main crux of all this. It centers around essentially a kid's game. And so we get the cool intro, obviously, from Are Afraid of the Dark, the traditional that we're used to now in season two. And they're playing hide and go seek around the campfire near the woods. And then it's all the members of the Midnight Society. And they all basically get around the campfire and they call safe, home. They're at base, essentially, in this game of hide-and-go-seek before David is able to catch them all. Not even able to capture a single one of them. And Frank goes up to him and says, sorry, pal, you lose. You're it. And David's lamenting that because he has been it again and it's been three times in a row. So David's really struggling here to capture anybody to make them it so he consistently has to be the seeker and he's never able to hide betty and eventually basically volunteers his tribute here willing to take the bullet if you will and save david from this fate she's willing to be the seeker but david just wants to start the story and Kristen comes in and says why are we even playing this dumb kids game anyway Kiki gets very defensive and says, listen, I'll tell the story and that this is not a dumb kids game. I wanted us to play hide and seek to get in the mood for my story. How's a game going to get us in the mood for a scary tale? Because hide and seek is not like any other game. You start off in a group, but when you're out there in the dark, you're all alone. You got to hide and be real quiet because you never know when somebody might jump out and catch you. She says her story is about a game of hide-and-go-seek with a twist. When you play the game in her story, you never know when you'll get caught, and you never know who or what might catch you. She then introduces the tale of Old Man Corcoran. Betty Ann here, just uh, again showing that she is the nicest person in the Midnight Society, willing to become it just so David doesn't feel bad about himself. So major props to Betty Ann. This is our first time with Kiki as the storyteller, not in the chronology of the of the series, but in the episodes that we have chosen so far. I believe this is the first time we've picked one of her stories. This whole concept of hide-and-seek, is it a, quote, dumb kids game or not? This whole idea, uh, you know, when you're growing up, you reach a point where some people try to act more adult or grown up or do it sooner than others, and that can be a little bit awkward sometimes. It actually reminded me of in Stranger Things. There was this one point where in, in the first season, all of the boys in the show they were playing Dungeons and Dragons and it was a big part of their friendship. And then in a later season, one of the kids still wants to play Dungeons and Dragons and the others are all disinterested and they want to do other stuff. 
And I didn't like that because I didn't really understand why you would feel the need to move on from something like Dungeons and Dragons. I mean, adults play that. I, I played it just a few years ago, a campaign. And, you know, hide and seek. I mean, yeah, you might think of it as a kid's game, but maybe there are different ways to play the game to keep it interesting. I mean, and we'll see in this episode that there's a big twist on the game that maybe Kristen isn't thinking about. So, I mean, what's your take on this whole idea of kids thinking like they're too grown up for something or that they need to move on from something? Is that really a thing where ages and activities, like how much do they matter? Honestly, I think it's just a pseudo form of bullying. I really do. I still play all the things I did as a kid. I mean, I'll evolve to the extent that I want to, but at the same time, if it's something that you enjoy, I feel it's reasonable to enjoy it at a certain level. I, I don't see why there's this arbitrary way to criticize somebody just because, oh, they're too old. And so it's like, as you get older, oh, you're not allowed to drink certain drinks. Now, that being said, I probably don't drink Capri Sun the way that I did or High C as a kid because sugar affects me more. So I might drink less. But if somebody's drinking High C, are you going to judge them because they enjoy it? I got a lot of that when, when I would drink, you know, foo-foo drinks, margaritas or whatever. Oh, you, why aren't you having a beer? It's like, well, beer tastes bad, but that's what a guy does. You're supposed to drink that. Or in terms of certain games you play, like maybe, yeah, maybe I like to play a board game like Monopoly or something, or maybe I want a really nerdy game like Dungeons and Dragons. Nope, you're a guy, you have to golf, you know, but if you golf, hey, no one's going to question you. Everyone just assumes, yeah, that's a normal guy thing to do. And so it's easier just to kind of fit into these molds because no one's going to question you. You're not going to stand out. You're going to kind of morph into what everyone else does, but you're not being true to yourself. You're not being true to the things that you enjoy. And so the idea, I, I can understand maybe having an issue with the game itself, like even something like Dungeons and Dragons, I think can get taken to the point of creepiness where I would object to that. But in terms of age, the fact that the game of Dungeons and Dragons, no, not really about that. Not really about arbitrarily removing it. Yeah, I think I'm hoping that with millennials, as this is the nostalgic millennial podcast, after all, um, I feel like with millennials, there's more openness toward people just doing what makes them happy. I, I've seen, you know, sometimes like nowadays there are, uh, people that are referred to as like Disney adults, like, you know, adults who just love going to Disney and everything. And some people kind of making fun of that to an extent. But I think those people that make fun are, are mainly older people that like don't get it, you know, because to me, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, if someone loves Disney, I want them to go and enjoy it regardless of what age they are. And so I feel that way about pretty much every activity. And so I guess this, I mean, I get like hide and seek. Okay. Like, yeah, you know, that is maybe something that's normally played by younger kids, but it got me thinking about all these other activities. If I found out there was like an adult hide and seek league, I'd be like, okay, fine. That's, you know, it might even be fun. I don't know. So, uh, but it seems like when you're a kid in particular, there's this pressure that you want to seem grown up. You always want to seem older than you are. And you always want to be taken more seriously. I think especially, like you mentioned, from the guy's point of view, there's a lot of that, well, you need to eat this, drink this, play this, do this because of, 
being manly or whatever, you know? And so maybe that's a big part of it as well. Um, but Kiki here is going to kind of take what was considered a very innocent, simple kids game and kind of turn it on its head. And so there are ways to sort of reimagine even some of these activities. Yeah, for sure. And that's, and I think it's hide and seek. It's one of those games that naturally phases out just based on what the game is itself, where it's kind of silly in that you get bigger and you're, it's not as easy to hide. You can't fit in as many places. It's not as scary when you're an adult, etc. So like by its own terms, it goes out. But to say, oh, you can't play a video game or a board game because you're too old for it. Well, as long as the board game itself is of a more sophisticated nature, you shouldn't just be throwing it away just because it's something that a kid may have played or a kid was into or a kid normally might play. And so for something like hide and seek, I play hide and seek. I play with my kids, right? And I'm pretty OP at it, to be (laughs) honest. And I remember, you know, even when my kids were little, I took it very seriously. I never made it obvious I was not that dad that was going to be, oh, you're never going to find me. And then I'm standing, you know, behind a broom or something and they could see me. So I was always hiding and they never could find me. I mean, they never could (laughs) find me. And as they got older, it started actually being an, an issue for them because they, they didn't like it. They didn't like the feeling. And they'll say, they'd say, Daddy, I'm scared. Can you come <laughs> out? Daddy, can you? And I said, OK, fine. Like, you know, I'll concede. And so I would basically knock on the door or or the wall after a couple minutes to kind of give a hint or something like that, just because I kind of felt bad. Like, I, I didn't want my kids to be mortified. <laughs> and I just imagine that's in, a, in an enclosed space in my home. You put me out in the woods. You put me out in a graveyard at dark. I mean, you're never going to find me. You might as well just bury me because I'm, I'm that good. <laughs> and it actually got me thinking about the rules of hide and seek because I was kind of confused here because how I've always played it. And again, I don't really remember as a kid because was a, you know, I, I don't have memories as a kid playing it. But as an adult, basically with my kids, how I play hide and seek is you hide. And then if you're found, that's it. GG game over. But if you're not found, you just, you can, you wait and you wait to see if you get found here. It seems they're racing to hit home base. And when I first saw it, I was thinking that's tag, right? Like tag, you have a home base or something like that here. It's like, did they get found? And then they had a chance to run. Did they have, did David have to tag them prior to them hitting home? So I was a little confused. Maybe if you had any idea about that specific rule set for their hide and seek, or if not, you know, what was your understanding of how to play the game? No, I was confused. I played it the way you did, which was you just get found and that's it. That's that's the end. But I do think there are variations on it where maybe like when you find the person, then you have to also like tag them or something um, in order to seal the deal. In this case, it could have been almost like a hybrid of hide and seek and tag. But I feel like these sorts of games don't have hard and fast rules. I, I think in different neighborhoods even, or different towns, I bet you, you find variations on them, but the type that I always played was just simply, they had to find you. And when they found you, that was it. So I, I and to me, that makes more sense because it's just simpler that way. And the point isn't about racing around and, running and tagging it's hide and seek so the whole point is to do the hiding so if you get found then you didn't hide well enough and then that's the end of it that's how i would play it it's back to how you're so op at hide and seek i didn't realize that this was one of your skills that you had 
if this was Napoleon Dynamite, we'd be listing out your skills. I feel like that's the exact. Skills. I feel like you know he's hearing this. He's like, man, I should have included that in the actual writing. Like my skills at hide and seek, it fit would fit perfectly in the movie. <laughs> it would fit so good with his character. Do you own an invisibility cloak, or like what's going on here? It seems like I do. I'm honestly really good at playing corners and feel the vision. And I obviously, you know, that's from my extensive video game playing, but basically I kind of get an idea. Okay. Here's the field of vision. And yeah, if my kids were proper and they went around each corner, cause again, I mean, I'm a pretty big dude. I'm like six foot. Like I can't fit in difficult places, but it's about field of vision. So the kids, are they going to be turning around the entirety of the corner? No. And so in those types of places, it's, it works out really well. So especially behind doors, great place to hide they may open a bathroom door look in the bathroom and they're like okay he's not here i'm behind the door and you would so you have to check behind the corners that's my secret so you know my kids listen to the podcast when you play hide and go seek you got to check the corners because i'm usually (laughs) going to be there that's my that's my big secret (laughs) is hide behind the corners See, see now now it seems like this whole episode was just a way of sending a message to your kids so that they'll have a chance <laughs> to find where you are. But now that you've told them that now you can use that to your advantage because you know that they'll be thinking in that way going <laughs> forward. <laughs> and that adds another level. Maybe I did this episode just to confuse them even further. <laughs> it's this never ending thing where I will always conquer in hide and go see mind be, games. You know, I'll be 80 years old. But going back to what you said about the rules, yeah, I think you're probably right. It just conveniently fit. Kind of reminds me of Pinball Wizard with the re- reset button on the old school Game Boy that didn't exist, but it it made sense for what they were doing. And the fact that they had it in a pinball machine instead of an actual arcade game where you're kind of like, yeah, that doesn't really line up, but it might have just made more sense for what they were trying to do story-wise because you're right. It's, it's, it's about having the hide-and-go-seek be the mechanism for the story. And then we begin our story. And so we're introduced right away to two brothers, Jack and Kenny. Jack is the older brother, Kenny the younger. They're new to a neighborhood, and they'll do just about anything to fit in. This neighborhood is very much just a typical city suburb, pretty nice affluent area. They're having a water gun fight together when the neighborhood kids, six in total, roll up in their bikes, and they invite Jack and Kenny to play hide-and-go-seek. One of the boys emerges from the pack. His name's Marshall. He looks to be the leader, and he says that he just noticed them move into town. I saw you guys moving in last week. Where are you from? East side. East side? (laughs) Nice neighborhood. Toughest in the city. Yeah, that's why we moved. So, you guys like it here? I don't know. It's kind of a loser neighborhood. It's not. We like it a lot better here. We learn that Jack and Kenny haven't made any friends yet, so Marshall invites them to play hide-and-go-seek at dark. Well, if you want... You see those guys over there? Yeah. We get together every once in a while for a game of hide-and-seek. We're playing tonight if you guys want to come. I don't think so. Why not? Well, it's just a stupid kid's game. That's okay. You guys would probably be too afraid to play where we do anyway. Kind of calling them out here. When Jack asks why Marshall says that they'd be too scared, Marshall simply says, let's just say it gets pretty dark there at night. Jack says that we're not chicken and they are committed to proving themselves in participating in this hide-and-go-seek contest. So first thoughts here, this is a nice neighborhood, man. I'm kind of jealous about it. We find out that they've just moved there recently from a tough neighborhood, 
And Jack definitely seems like he's still in that kind of mentality because he sort of has to always act like he's the big man on campus here. And he definitely doesn't want Marshall to think that he's afraid. It's a really easy way for Marshall to manipulate Jack into playing the game because he just basically calls him chicken more or less. And then that's all he had to do. So of these two brothers, I'm definitely a lot more of the Kenny type. Seems nice. He seems like he just wants to make friends. He openly admits that the neighborhood is way better than the one that they came from. He doesn't seem to have the sort of chip on his shoulder like his brother Jack does. What do you think's the deal with the difference here between these two brothers? Why is Jack having to assert his dominance where Kenny seems like he's more than happy to just be in this nicer place? Well, it's really a great story of dichotomies here, starting with obviously Jack and Kenny. You have the dichotomy of the suburban city they live in now with that of what purports to be this rough city. I mean, it's an inner city, right? It's a poor inner city that you'd think of. And right off the bat, you have a water gun fight, right? To me, I'm thinking of the violence of the inner city. I'm thinking of actual gunshots that they may have heard. Jack even says you're dead to Kenny after getting first hit. That's stuff they might have actually had to deal with in their old town. Gun violence, bullets, shots like that. And so you have that parallel happening here. You also have the dichotomy, as you had mentioned, about the difference between Jack and Kenny. Jack here almost basically has this nostalgia for his hometown. So yeah, it was a tough place. We liked it. We were the coolest kids there. We were really strong. And Kenny is very different. He's like, oh, I didn't like it. So in my opinion, I saw that very much as Jack's proud of his roots. Kenny's not. And I think that's probably an age thing. I think Jack's probably past the point of trauma where he's now said, listen, this is my life. And then he's developed nostalgia for his trauma, essentially. Whereas Kenny's still young and that's still raw and not yet developed. And then finally, the dichotomy of this being brave is be very much an inner city type thing where Jack's motivations here in playing hide and go seek is to prove himself, to show how tough he is. He's here to assert his dominance, whereas Kenny just wants to make friends. And it's very interesting here, even just the kids rolling up in a group. I mean, you have them coming on bikes. It's kind of like a gang of sorts. That's how I saw it, a gang of sorts. But instead of, hey, let's go commit a crime or let's go do X, Y, or Z, it's let's play hide and go seek. So you have this clear dichotomy here. And I was actually going to ask you about what your thoughts were about kind of what I said about the trauma of Jack, kind of his transference from this trauma into like a nostalgia for this old place versus Kenny who sees it for what it is. I mean, is that something that happens with age where people at some point are old enough where it just kind of becomes imbued within their personality and they kind of become a lot of that trauma? They kind of become a part of that neighborhood instead of rejecting it? It makes plenty of sense. I I think that I agree with what you said on all those points. I do teach the psychology class at my high school, and I will say that people who are involved in traumatic situations oftentimes find defense mechanisms to help them deal with the trauma. And so there are many different defense mechanisms. And some of the ways that people might do that is either sort of like uh, repressing something where they try to forget about it. Or in Jack's case, this may be something where he's trying to almost make his past okay by pretending, in a sense, that he enjoyed it or that he 
would almost have chosen it, even though he did not choose it, and it was actually thrust upon him, that may be a way to feel in control of his past, is to sort of take some kind of pride or ownership in it. And so it's very fascinating. And from the very beginning, this is a really deeply written story. It has a lot of themes in it, you know, socioeconomic themes uh, regarding to you know, where people grew up, demographics, lots of interesting stuff you could get into. But the thing that caught my eye was actually the super soakers that were involved in this scene. (laughs) On a lighter note, the super soakers. Dude. So Jack just has this tiny little like water pistol super soaker. He's like James Bond to me. You know, he's kind of like peering around corners sneaking through the trial, like looking through the trellis to kind of see his brother. It's like the PP seven, you know, yeah, ex- exactly. Uh, uh, exactly. And golden eye. And then, but his brother has the giant water pack, like with like just the outrageous amount of spray. And he comes out and he hits Jack with it. And then pay to win, man. Yeah. But, but then when they run to the front yard, Jack is shooting him in the face with his tiny little water <laughs> pistol, and Kenny somehow is totally incapacitated by it. He's and and Jack's even yelling at him to say "uncle" when the kids ride up on their bikes. So Jack here with this super underpowered gun, you know, the the weakest of the super soakers here, just annihilating his brother <laughs> with the whole water pack and everything. I, I just none of that makes any sense to me at all. I mean, Kenny must have like, is he a cat? Like, does he have no tolerance <laughs> whatsoever? Like for water? I don't understand. Well, but you know, I, I, I loved seeing these toys uh, being used though. It was great. I thought the same thing about what was happening. Cause it actually, when Jack gets hit at first, it's kind of funny. He almost responds like he's getting shot. Like he's getting thrown back <laughs> by this massive pack. And yeah, I completely agree about Kenny just taking it not responding. The only thing I could think of is he's got his eyes on the bike group coming in, wondering what they're doing here. Okay. And maybe you could tie it into the trauma from his previous neighborhood. Like that would have meant something if a group of six guys rolled up to your house. So maybe that's why that he was distracted, but Mm -hmm. otherwise, yeah, it doesn't make sense. I mean, we're kind of even overselling Jack's gun as like a PP7. I mean, this thing may have had like three squirts worth of water <laughs> yeah. in it before you get, you get to a dribble. It wasn't quite. Remember those uh, really cheap plastic ones? Oh, yeah, yeah. That With would the, literally give you like three shots. The trigger it that's like, that like bad, a big but... hunk of plastic. Like, <laughs> yeah, the things yeah. that like, like break if they fell yeah, on the yeah, sidewalk yeah. or whatever. But it wasn't that bad, but pretty close. So Jack and Kenny have decided that they're going to participate in hide and seek to prove themselves and or make friends. And so we cut to the location at night for hide and seek. It's in a graveyard in the woods. You've got nice heavy fog going on, moonlight, really beautifully shot scene. They approach the fence that they need to climb into to get to the graveyard. And Kenny starts getting scared. You're kidding, right? Come on, let's go. We're going in there. You're the one who wanted to make friends, remember? Let's go. They end up climbing this massive fence. It has spikes on top of it and they need to scale it in order to get into the graveyard. They're searching the graveyard, and they can't find the group of neighborhood kids to play with. Eventually, Marshall, the leader of the group who had approached them before, jumps out and scares them. He calls out, Ollie, Ollie, Austin, free! 
Ollie, Ollie, oxen free. Which I looked up. It's basically a phrase with origins that I'm not certain about. Maybe you can elucidate that later. But basically, it notifies everyone to come out. Ultimately, the group didn't think that Jack and Kenny would show up. And so they decided to come out and restart the game once Jack and Kenny had arrived. Every member of the group passes Kenny and Kenny's saying hi, trying to make friends. They're not interested. No one of these neighborhood kids says hi back to Kenny. Marshall then introduces the group. That's Ron Jacobson, Scott Walden, Laura Ayers, Mary Alice Reardon, and Sissy Vernon. Sissy? Just call me Vernon. What are they doing here? It's spelled with a C, not an S. But Jack scoffs at the name. Marshall says that the more, the merrier. Vernon obviously does not want them in the group, does not want them as part of their hide-and-go-seek expeditions. Vernon says that she hopes they don't scare easy, to which Jack says, what's there to be scared of? It's a graveyard. Everyone here is dead anyway. Vernon responds, well, kinda, then says that old man Corcoran's around. Old man Corcoran. Who's the groundskeeper here? He used to dig the graves by hand. No machinery. He thought he owned the place. So he'd walk around at night, all by himself, just to make sure no one was trespassing. If he was not out patrolling, he would be in his shack playing his harmonica. Vernon says that old man Corcoran was crazy. And once he saw a kid stealing from his shack, old man Corcoran cut off the kid's hand with an axe. Legend has it that while old man Corcoran was digging a grave, the walls of the grave collapsed, burying Old Man Corcoran alive. Some say he still walks the graveyard at night, looking for trespassers. And if it's real quiet, you might even hear him playing his harmonica off in the distance. Jack says that his grandma is scarier than that story, and he wonders how long vermin, instead of vernon, would last in his old neighborhood. Jack says that he will believe the story of old man Corcoran when he sees it. We learn the rules. The tree's home base. Hide anywhere you want. Anything outside the fence is out of bounds. Last one in is it. Ron, you're up. And the game has begun. All right, first things first. I have some knowledge to drop on everyone here. Did you recognize the actress that plays Sissy Vernon? I, I did not. I did not. And I knew because I honestly thought the I thought Marshall reminded me of Banks from Mighty Ducks. And I had made a mental note to kind of go back and check to see if that was him. And I just forgot. So who, who <laughs> we got here? Well, it's not anything as exciting as Mighty Ducks, perhaps. I don't know. Maybe this is more exciting, actually. She played in The Tale of Laughing in the Dark. She was Ouija's sister. Kathy. Uh... Yeah. So nice throwback right there. So regarding Ollie Ollie Oxen Free, uh, you know, I did the the barest of research. Uh, let me quote from the Wikipedia article about Ollie Ollie Oxen Free. Now I, I had heard of this before. It was a thing you heard when you were a kid. The idea of it is just simply to say that, you know, everyone can come out. Like every you know, you're free to come out, but no one really knows where the term comes from. So according to the Wikipedia here, it says that the Dictionary of American Regional English says that the phrase may be derived from all ye, all ye outs in free, all the outs in free, 
or possibly, quote, calling all the outs in free. In other words, all who are out may come in without penalty. Others speculate the phrase may be a corruption of a German phrase, alla alla auxenfrei. All, all also are free. <laughs> so, <laughs> this, is, this sounds like me when I'm memorizing a song where I don't actually know the words, but I know exactly how the, to sound, how yeah. the song sounds. So I like make up whatever the word is. And right. It's not even a word. <laughs> so I don't actually know the actual <laughs> lyric, but I know the sound it makes. So I make the sound. That's it does. Kind of what the 100%. Like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's a, it's a very old phrase. I'm assuming that it, I think it makes sense that it goes back to some sort of old English, like perhaps colonial manner of speaking or, even to another language like German would make sense. So, uh, but that's what it is. And so somehow it morphed and evolved into that. So maybe it was people just slowly like messing it up over time, like creating sounds that were different than whatever the original phrase was very interesting. But that actually gave me a little bit of a flashback to a college class that we both took at some point which was called history of the english language which oh yeah i remember that i remember that class so so well man so well yes i can tell you do uh which was taught by one of the monks uh who because we went to a catholic university and there were sometimes priests and monks that that taught there and it was taught by one of these guys and he loved all this stuff about the origin of words and all of that and uh Honestly, I think it's pretty interesting, but it sounds like something I would have learned about back then. The next bit of knowledge to drop here is I paid attention to the different tombstones. I don't have any knowledge about these individual people, but what I did see was there was a stone that had the name Barbara Dwyer and Sean Dwyer. The first person was 1931 to 1972, The second person was 19-0-something. It might have been 4 to 1963. And then we had a person's name, Bill Cutter, but we cannot see the dates on that either. This was giving me Oregon Trail flashbacks to that creepy... If you guys ever play a game of Oregon Trail, at some point you run into a creepy tombstone. Uh, And this made me think of that immediately. None of these names are the names of the kids, And that's what I was sort of checking to see if there was any overlap, but there isn't. How how did this not freak you out? Bill Cutter, Matt. Okay, what episode were we going to be covering that we moved? Cutter's Treasure. So this was originally (laughs) going to be a Cutter's Treasure episode, but I had saved it. So I'd made a declaration prior that the next dark episode we would cover was Cutter's Treasure, but I wanted to save it for Halloween. And so we decided that we were going to push this recording of Cutters or Treasure back more towards Halloween and do this episode instead. So to me, I'm Dude, like... that's another... You just spoiled some more uh, some more Patreon <laughs> content right here. Not... So we do have Cutters Treasure coming up, but <laughs> <laughs> not not for a, a little bit longer. It freaks me out. It freaks <laughs> me out. And obviously, it's so it's Captain Jonas Cutter, but this could be a distant relative. And I just saw... To me, I don't know if he felt slighted that we had pushed him back or if he was just giving us a nod, but what are the odds? It just really freaked me out that we had (laughs) just moved Cutter's treasure, and here we are seeing a gravestone of potentially one of his relatives. Yeah, I don't know, man. I don't know what to tell you. I think uh, we just don't know if it was 
meant to be positive <laughs> or negative? Is this a warning or is Which it like always a shower? bothers me I'm about not sure. like paranormal stuff? It's you know people that tell ghost mm-hmm. stories. Oh, the ghost opened a window drape or whatever, or moved a blanket. It's like, why would a ghost right. do that? It's like, it's so <laughs> innocuous. Like what of all the messages they're going to do, it's going to be something like this that you can't possibly interpret. Correct. <laughs> and then I also wanted to mention Vernon because Vernon is the one who's at the center stage here. Vernon is the one who tells the ghost story and she doesn't seem very happy with these two newcomers at all. And basically, she's trying to scare them off with this sort of tale. To me, Vernon seemed like the type of person that came from a similar environment as Jack, because she was also very confrontational. She seemed like she was trying to act really tough and really cool. But we don't really know where she's from originally. We know that she's in this neighborhood now. They seem like similar personalities that butt heads immediately and so we have jack calling her vermin like you pointed out instead of vernon so what do you think the writers are up to here giving us this these sort of you know oppositional characters up against each other yeah i mean obviously it seems that they're both you know jack and her both puffing their chests out trying to be strong as an aside i have theories that i can't talk about right now because we're not revealing the twist but i do have things i want to get into later but yeah, they're, they're, they're button heads here. And it's kind of, honestly, a lot of, I, I think Vernon has to have some trauma, obviously maybe attachment issues where she's afraid to be replaced as the, as the new person, she was the last person to join the group and Marshall had promised that there wouldn't be someone after her. So in, in her mind, I think she definitely is, is latching onto that idea a lot. So who knows if that's a parent issue or whatever issue, but we don't get that information, but we do know at least Jack, you know, they talk about just his mom moving in and maybe he didn't have a dad growing up. He came from a bad neighborhood. We know that already. And this is pretty rough from Jack. I'm seeing a lot of trauma here emerging. I mean, when you think about it, just the name Sissy, it's obviously like a classical name that maybe over the years was corrupted to mean what we or Jack, I should say, knows to be a sissy as a derogatory term. It's a very 90s term. I don't know if it's still around anymore as a, as a derogatory term, but it just shows how things can get corrupted. And we know plenty of different words that over the years have had innocent, innocuous meanings changed to be something bad. Names that, that would had innocent meanings at some point and then later changed and been corrupted basically by bullying or just something that's not a good source because it ends up meaning something really harsh instead of a very neutral term. And here Jack essentially is calling her sissy vermin, right? You put the two names together, sissy vermin. I mean, that is absolutely brutal and, and rough to say to someone who you're playing with. You're trying to join their group, trying to make friends. Jack clearly doesn't care about that. He's just trying to bully his way. So he doesn't get bullied or who knows he's asserting his dominance Presumably, in my opinion, like you had mentioned before, as a defense mechanism. And I think definitely Vernon has those types of elements here as well. In this case, maybe defending her place in this family unit of hide-and-go-seekers. Yeah, I think that Jack, it's pretty clear the whole way through the story that he never has intentions of actually making friends. He's only there to sort of establish himself and his presence in the neighborhood and to prove his toughness. 
Kenny's the one who wanted to go for the sake of making friends, and he is not trying to cause problems here. But this is all, you know, Kenny's very much in the background. You know, Jack clearly is dominant in their sort of relationship as brothers. He's older, he's more aggressive, he's, quote, stronger, if you want to call it that. And so, basically, you know, Kenny here is just sort of letting Jack do most of the talking. And Jack, being the older, stronger brother here, decides to lead. Regardless, they're staying together as this game begins of hide-and-seek. Ultimately, Jack wants to go home since he says, oh, this is lame. But Kenny stops him again because they need to make friends. As they're walking looking for a hiding place, Kenny sees a creepy gravestone with the phrase, remember friends as you pass by, as you are so once was I. Remember in life that you must die. So a little bit of a a rain on this parade of hide-and-go-seek here. Ultimately, Jack finds an open grave as a potential hiding place. Don't be such a baby. This would be a great hiding place. Till it caved in. He's thinking back to the Old Man Corcoran story about how Old Man Corcoran ended up being buried alive, presumably buried alive, in a open grave. Before they can go into the grave, we hear a harmonica playing in the background. So Jack wants to go and investigate. Kenny thinks it's Old Man Corcoran playing his harmonica in his shack. Jack thinks it's just the kids in the group playing a trick on them in order to scare them off. Jack and Kenny go up to the shack. They begin to hear footsteps, and so they hide. They start to hear the chopping of wood, and they get a little bit nervous. Remember, old man Corcoran had an axe that had cut off the hand of a kid who had stolen from a shack. Kenny thinks this is really weird that one of the kids would bring an axe, so he thinks it's old man Corcoran. Jack's still convinced that this is a joke being played by the kids and that he would do the same thing. Eventually, once they stop hearing the noise, they pop out of their hiding place and they realize there's no one there anymore. But there is a harmonica sitting on top of a stump. When the boys leave, we then get a close-up of a hand grabbing the harmonica. Jack and Kenny run back and Laura jumps out from behind a gravestone to scare them, saying, Ollie, Ollie, oxen free. When Jack and Kenny turn to run away from Laura, they are face to face with an old man. He's very pale, very scary looking. They perceive him to be dead. This is presumably Old Man Corcoran. The boys are obviously terrified out of their minds, so they keep running and running and running. They reach the fence and they climb out to escape. On the way out, Kenny's clothing ends up getting attached to the spikes on the fence and his pants rip on his way down. So I mentioned before about the Oregon Trail tombstone. It actually would have fit really well in this scene if they had used that tombstone, because the thing that it says, here lies Voland. Hey, 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 come out and play. That's exactly what's going on here. I mean, that's what the whole point of this episode is. It's all about playing, right, and hide and seek. So I think that they should have included that in here. That was a missed opportunity uh, from the writers. I had a very stark memory because this was like, you know, I thought Oregon Trail first. And then I realized that while that was very creepy, it was, I remember this almost verbatim being a thing. And I was like, oh yeah, where else have we done an episode where they went to a tombstone and I remembered Hungry Hounds. And so this is actually a gravestone from Hungry Hounds. So that read, as you are, so was I. As I am, so you will be. 
and I had wrote that this guy's a troll in the Hungry <laughs> Hounds episode of my notes. So that's why I was able to go back to it. And here he is again. This guy keeps dying. Right. This guy or girl keeps dying and trolling <laughs> these kids with these with these tombstones that are just like horrifying and scary. And there's no name on no it. No name. I mean, there's, there's no Mm-mm. rest in peace person with a message or anything. It's just literally this message of mortality. Yeah. Just a message of, of mortality here. It's Ozymandias type stuff. Well, and this is great because Hungry Hounds, right? The actor who plays Old Man Corcoran, who I I may just refer to as like OMC from now on. David Francis is his name, although I know him as Daniel Carpenter from Station 109.1. But it's the same actor. So Hungry Hounds connections left and right here. I mean, this is crazy. This could be his idea. His idea to keep bringing this gravestone back. It's possible. It's definitely, I mean, they definitely knew what they were doing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, uh. That's fascinating to me, like, the idea of, it's like a recurring theme, that they want to remind the viewers of their mortality, which <laughs> is interesting, because this is, like, presumably mostly children watching the show. I think it's actually really effective. It's, it's super creepy. I mean, that can spiral you off pretty quickly, just imagining, like, all right, you know, this guy under the ground... He used to be alive, just like I am. It doesn't take too much to kind of think too much about that. So that's really creepy. Then we have old man Corcoran himself. They did make him look so pale. And like he's just, he's got the axe because he's like holding the axe the whole time. Uh, there's the part where he thunks the axe down into the stump. And there's just a lot of stuff where it's like, it could be very threatening. The harmonica even is super creepy. Like a harmonica, someone playing a harmonica in a graveyard at night. All around, lots of good choices here. The shot of when the kids turn around and come face to face with him, they do this camera tilt to sort of like accentuate the scariness of the whole thing. That clip, they would show that clip a lot. Good writing here with Kenny getting his clothes stuck on the gate because when he came in, he had the same problem because they they have to climb up over and like it's the sort of fence where there's like the points at the top and he got almost caught coming in and he sort of looks down at it and then going out, he does get caught because he's moving too quick. So I thought that was some nice foreshadowing. But they do get away. They run away screaming, of course. So I don't think that this went the way that Jack was hoping. So what does this mean? Does this mean that Jack is really just a poser? Because he comes in all bluster and everything. And look at me, I'm tough dude from the bad neighborhood. And now he's sprinting away from the cemetery, screaming his head off. So, I mean... Does Jack really have the chops that he thinks he has? Or is this, you know, has this debunked him as basically a poser? Keep on posing, baby. You know what time it is. (laughs) (laughs) The Mad TV skit of uh, Fred Durst, or I should say Limp Biscuits, rolling. Uh, That that video just came to my mind. But yeah, he's for sure a poser. For sure a poser. And as I said, this is how I would be. I mean, if I were in a scary situation, regardless of what it is, I'm going to puff my chest out. I'm going to pretend everything's fine. Of course I am. I'm going to assume, oh, kids are playing a trick on me because what's the alternative, right? What's the alternative? You're Kenny. And I'm not a Kenny. I refuse to be a Kenny. 
Now, you know, my kids, a a lot of times are Kenny's. My wife, a lot of times is a Kenny where they just assume the worst. That'd be a terrible, that'd be a terrible frame of mind to think the worst thing possible. Like you hear a rap on your door and you're like, oh, it must be an intruder coming into my home. No, I'm going to think of the least terrifying thing possible. So yeah, it makes a lot more sense that the kids are playing a prank. You know, they set up this old man Corcoran story as a prank and all they have, all they need is a harmonica essentially. And they could, they could pull it off. Just play the harmonica at this abandoned shack game over. And it could be a, an initiation form for the group. I mean, that makes a lot more sense than some old man's, a ghost coming and et cetera. It's just, yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm on Jack's side, but I guess when he sees old man Corcoran, and again, we only have the visual, we don't know entirely how Jack interpreted it or what exactly he saw himself. That was enough to convince him that this was this was something a little bit different from what he signed up for. And I think once you know that, once you know it's actually the thing that you thought you were afraid of, it is that robber, it is that bad thing. Yeah, you you bolt out of there. You don't you don't puff your chest out because you actually are faced with something scary that's has no problem meeting you face to face, head on. Old man Corcoran's not running away. He's standing right there, not afraid whatsoever of these kids. Man, Jack just totally taken to school here. I mean, he's how is he going to rebuild his cred with the rest of the crew? I, I guess we'll see soon enough, at least what he'll try to do. But yeah, I think that I'm a Kenny in the sense that I think that Jack is way too unnecessarily aggressive and confrontational. But I will say that when it comes to if there's a noise or something like that, I do try to be more rational about it at first. Yeah, that's what I was. I, I'm not Jack in, in, in his entire character arc. I'm yes, saying in, in yes. specifically how you would deal with this situation. I'm a Jack. Yeah, I think I, I think I'd be closer to a Jack probably in in this case. Um, but his whole character arc is based on his defense mechanisms. He likely brought up from his trauma in the inner city. Because who knows, maybe he had to be tough or else he becomes a target for bullying, becomes a target for violence, etc. Yeah, no, I think I think that's the case. So that, that's where that's probably coming from. So we're going to flee along with Jack and Kenny here, and we're going to find them the next day in their garage. They are sweeping the garage because apparently it is their mother's punishment for Kenny having ripped his pants. And Kenny wishes, he says, that his mom never went back to school, then they wouldn't have moved here and they'd still be with their old friends. Jack then gets really angry with Kenny, and he gets very serious, and he says, never mention anything about that in front of mom, ever. Do not tell her that you wish we were back there. Okay, Jack gets real serious about this. Now, as they're having this sort of argument, the kids start to show up again from the graveyard. They show up on their bikes again. Hey, so you guys playing tonight? Tonight? Again? Well, you didn't get to finish the game last night. Uh, I don't think we're up to it. Why not? We just aren't. At first, they don't want to come, but Vernon starts calling them chicken, and Marshall says that the story that Vernon told isn't even real. It was just meant to mess with them. Vernon then eventually goes full-out chicken impression and is just totally baiting Jack, and of course, he agrees to come back. When the kids leave the garage, Jack says, This isn't about making friends anymore, Kenny. We've got to prove we can handle it here. We're going to play their game. 
That was always weird to me. How is it about still proving yourself? I mean, it, it doesn't part of you want to know about the, the potential idea of a ghost living in this graveyard. I mean, how is that not your motivation for under you're still of the mindset that you got to be a tough guy here, Jack? Yeah, I mean, what the heck? I mean, get with it. Like, they both think that they just saw a ghost and they're not even interested. Like, come on. Now, I will say, Kenny here with a serious inconsistency, at least with his character here, because he goes from before saying, oh, you know, it's great here in the suburbs. I'm glad we're out of that bad neighborhood. Now he's saying, man, I wish we'd never left. What's Kenny up to here? And then and then Jack flipping and saying, no, don't ever say that to mom. Because Jack realizes that she sacrificed for them to get them out of that situation. But it seemed like Kenny understood that before. And it seemed like Jack didn't. And now it's the opposite. So, like, what's the deal here with the characterization of, of these two boys? Yeah, I mean, something about Old Man Corcoran changed their minds where they reversed. I mean, part of me thought that in the first, when we were introduced to Jack and Kenny's impressions of this ideology of Kenny saying, oh, it's not that bad. It's better than where we came from. And Jack defended it. It was in front of the kids. So that actually made some sense that Jack would try. To, he wasn't going to be sentimental Jack in front of these kids. He was going to be tough guy Jack. But throughout the whole graveyard scene, he's still doubling down on not wanting to make friends. He's still doubling down on his neighborhood or whatever. So maybe there's some of that where publicly Jack's still going to say, yeah, I miss our old place. You know, back then, you know, we, you, we were tough. We fought people. We X, Y, and Z puffing his chest out. But privately he understands in his heart that, yeah, mom is really working hard here again. No, apparently no dad involved. Mom's working real hard here to get us out of a, of a really bad situation and something hopefully that Jack warms up to. I mean, I like the fact that Jack has warmed up to his mom's sacrifices. But yeah, Kenny, what's what's going on with Kenny here? Wanting to go back to his old friends doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. I mean, that, that, I just don't understand that. I guess these characters, this group of people were so bad. They're even worse than the inner city kids that they had <laughs> left from the gangbangers or whatever in the inner city. I don't know. It doesn't make any sense to me. The only thing I can think of is that. Kenny is kind of throwing a tantrum because he's been punished. And then Jack here is actually very like adult in his understanding of what their moving actually meant and what his mom had to do in order to make it happen. So I guess it's kind of showing that he understands more than he lets on. And like you said, it's more of an act for other people to see him that way, that's the best I can come up with. Even their punishment suburbia, though. It's like, I mean, that's an immaculate garage. Everything's yeah. hung up perfectly. And yeah, maybe they did a decent job sweeping, but there's nothing in the garage. It's all hung up perfectly. Their yard's pristine. I mean, what kind of a punishment <laughs> is that? I mean, there's nothing on the ground at all. I mean, the, even a suburban punishment here for these boys. Well, what do you think about Vernon's chicken impression, though? I mean, she goes full out chicken here. <laughs> the, the The only thing that I would wish would be if we could have inserted a clip of Tommy Wiseau doing his version of a chicken from the room. <laughs> uh, because to me, that's the gold standard chicken impression. Cheap, 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 cheap. <laughs> uh, but, you know, uh, Vernon is a lot more of a, of a full bodied, like full out chicken right here. Well, I mean, it's never too late to insert uh, Tommy Wiseau. So don't lose hope on that. 
to me, I thought back to Back to the Future, you know, with Biff Tannen <laughs> talking to Marty McFly to get, you know, calling him yellow or whatever and getting him to do something completely irrational that he knows is going to lead to just terrible things. And yet you call someone a chicken, got to do it. You know, we talked a little bit about that in the Christmas story episode of the you know double dog dare and, and whatnot. And it's just, I don't know, that stuff was never effective to me. I never dealt with it thankfully and i i hope that's not a thing anymore where you just say oh well, i dare you to do something absolutely ridiculous like you just saw a ghost in the graveyard come back huh you're a chicken if you don't <laughs> well it works uh, immediately on jack and so we're gonna be right back in the graveyard it seems like the group of kids aren't really sure if jack and kenny are going to show marshall uh, and vernon are having a discussion they'll be here What's the big deal about letting them in the group anyway? I'm tired of the same people all the time. We haven't had any new players since... Since I joined? And you said after me there wasn't going to be anymore. Jesse was wrong. And we do learn more about that animosity where it seems like Vernon still really resents Marshall for inviting Jack and Kenny back or even there in the first place. But Jack and Kenny do show up And the kids decide that they can be it together because they are such wimps. One of the random kids who doesn't have any other lines even says, why don't you babies hold hands as the kids walk off to go hide? So they're counting to 10 at the tree. At least Jack is. Uh, Kenny is lamenting that he just wants to make some friends. Is it always going to be like this? And Jack ends up counting to 10, and then they go off searching. They wander around looking at a bunch of different gravestones. They don't see anybody. Eventually, they sense some movement, and we see a kid in yellow run past them. And the kid hides behind a stone that says, Ron Oil, 1940 to 1960. We love you. But just at this moment, a fog blows in. And when it clears, you can't see the kid anymore. They have vanished. Jack and Kenny are getting frustrated. And just then they hear Old Man Corcoran's harmonica. Jack decides to pull Kenny along with him to go investigate. Why don't we get the others and all go in together? No, by the time we get back, he'll be gone. Old Man Corcoran's out there and we're going to prove it. How? When he steals harmonica. So they hide behind the sort of wood pile. We see the old man cutting wood, and then he walks off away from the area. When Jack sees his opportunity, him and Kenny move up and dive behind the stump where the old man had set down his harmonica. But before they can grab it, the old man returns. And now we have our two kids here huddled behind this sort of stump here, and just hoping that the old man doesn't see them. He takes his axe, and he swings it down into the stump, and just leaves it embedded. Doesn't seem like he's seen them. He grabs his harmonica and walks off. That was close. Yeah, he almost saw us. No, I mean we're so close to getting the harmonica. Now we're going to have to go get it. We don't need the harmonica. Let's just get the others out here to see him. Where are you going? To get the others. Jack, meanwhile, as Kenny walks off, turns on his flashlight, and he says, if I die, it's his fault. And then he sneaks into 
the old man's house. Yeah, Jack has a death wish here. Again, the, with the, trying to understand the motivations behind these characters, it makes sense to not go back because there's a ghost there. If you're going to go back, it's to investigate said ghost. But that's horrifying that you would want to do that. Jack, though, in the previous scene that we discussed, said his motivation was to prove he wasn't a coward and to complete the hide-and-seek game. So that's why he goes back. Then, instead of completing the hide-and-seek game, he decides to investigate old man Corcoran, which is what would have been a motivation in the first place that he did not acknowledge. So it was hard juggling his emotions as to what he's even doing, but it seems like he has a death wish because even if you get that harmonica, what does that prove? You could have bought a harmonica. It's not, there wasn't anything specific about it enough. They didn't say it's a certain one or it has an engraving or anything like that. Vernon just said harmonica. So it could have been anything. And so the idea that you're going to go with an ax wielding ghost who cuts off kids hands just absolute death wish here so hard to understand what jack is thinking here and the thing about the harmonica i thought the same thing i mean if he brings that back vernon's just gonna be like oh you got it out of your garage when you were sweeping it earlier or something like that there's no reason for them to think that it's actually old man corcoran's harmonica so really kenny is the one making sense because he wants to get the kids to come to the old man's house to show them that he's a, that he's real. And so that would prove that he's real if he could show them actually the man himself. But instead, Jack just going after the harmonica, and he's actually going to break inside the house here in order to do that. I mean, breaking and entering into a ghost's house, that doesn't <laughs> seem like a smart move. His flashlight barely works. He has to hit it to get it started. I mean... He's he's done for here. And he, go, he wants to go in the house to steal the harmonica that, again, to reiterate, from a ghost who chops off kids' hands who steal things from his home. So Correct. <laughs> <laughs> and I hate this I hate this plot hole. And I you know, I always I'm trying to look beyond it, but I hate when characters take unnecessary, irrational risks for something that won't even be conclusive. I, I can't tell you how much I hate that. You you need to know for sure that if you're going to take this risk, that what you do will be successful. Otherwise, why would you do it? Like what you just said about, hey, you got it from sweeping. That's exactly what would happen. That is a very small thing to think about before risking the entirety of your existence on this insane mission. Just a small little two-second thought that should be in front of anyone's mind and to just ignore it because, hey, we need to get them in the shack. You gotta, you have to come up with a better reason to get them into that shack. But it's a very convenient MacGuffin for them to do it. I just, it's so hard for me to look past that enormous a plot hole. Well, see, I don't know. I don't think it's a plot hole. I, I think that it's just a problem with Jack as a person because, frankly, I could see him doing this because it's something that clearly hasn't thought it through. But he hasn't necessarily been a thoughtful character. He's all bullheaded. He's all talk, and and he's all um, you know bravado, machismo. One might say, and so the whole idea here that he's going to bust in there, steal the harmonica, act like the big man. To me, it fits pretty good with his character. I think it's moronic. I think it's stupid. (laughs) I think that it's illogical. I would never do it. And if you did, like we had said, it would fail necessarily because the other characters would just discount the harmonica. And so I think it's a bad plan. 
but I don't consider it a plot hole because I think that Kenny going off to go get the kids makes sense and Jack wanting to burst ahead on his own makes sense. To me, it was not irredeemable as far as the writing, as far as Jack's character, perhaps, but I can accept it. Jack had some hubris here. Yes. (laughs) The classic flaw, right? Tragic flaw of heroes of Greek tragedy going back thousands of years. Excessive pride. Speaking of hubris, what were your thoughts on that Ron Oil gravestone? Well, I have some knowledge to drop about that. I'm guessing you do as well. <laughs> uh, I'll let you go ahead with it. Yeah, it's just a, it's such an obvi- it's such an odd close up of this gravestone for so long, and so trying to figure out what this was, looking up what does Ron Oil mean? Well, Ron Oliver was the director here, so obviously, I guess technically, Oliver has olive in it. You make oil out of olives. Maybe that was a nickname from him. I don't know, but clearly, that's what this is insinuating, right? He put his name in some way on the gravestone, right? Yeah, it is. That's it's exactly what it is. I'm wondering what that 20 years was though. I wonder what like what what significance that held. Cuz obviously, I mean Ron Oil, Ron Oliver, pretty easy to connect. But the 20 years was kind of interesting. I'm I'm curious what that meant. No, I don't know anything about the 20 years. Um yeah, I have no clue. Uh all I know is that it's a reference to his name, but why they chose those dates remain a mystery. Perhaps it's the symbolic death of his childhood, something like that. Or maybe he had a life-altering event happen when he was 20 and he became a new man. This is one of those things I'd want to do a whole podcast on, just interviewing him. And I'd ask him that question and then be like, well, that's about all I have for you. I just wanted to know that one little tidbit, actually. Because <laughs> you probably interviewed everything else, but that's the one thing that's just lingering on my mind. We should do it. Just get him on for the one question. <laughs> Oh, and then we'll and then we'll uh, release it as a separate episode. It'll be yes. like three minutes long. <laughs> well, he could he could join us in on a separate episode, and we could basically like hide it and find a way to connect, like find another one with a gravestone, and be like, yeah, like how you did it in this, and what was that twenty years about? You like, find a way to bring it in. Oh, that's and slick. then and without actually asking the question. Now that's very elaborate. Slick way like do. oil, indeed, oil that can be made from olives. Yes. <laughs> Okay, so back into the old man's house. So Jack sneaks inside. We see a plate of half-finished food sitting on a chair. We see some old photos, some old furniture, and his flashlight goes off. The door slams shut, and for some reason he can't open it from the inside. Not sure why, but he's struggling to open the door. He then backs up into an old music player and it starts playing this distorted, creepy-sounding old tune, and the camera spins around as Jack becomes more and more disoriented, as all of these things are starting to go wrong. Suddenly, Kenny shows up and jump-scares Jack. He came back because apparently he got scared. Somehow, though, in all of this, he found the harmonica. He just happened upon it. And so Kenny has the harmonica now, and Jack asks for the flashlight. Yeah, give me a flashlight. I'm not holding the flashlight. Well, I'm not holding the flashlight. Dad? Give me my harmonica. And Old Man Corcoran himself turns the flashlight to reveal his face. 
And then the kids run screaming again, screaming away from the old man, but they do still have the harmonica as they're running. Kenny falls and Jack has to help him back up. They run some more screaming even louder into an open grave and Vernon is inside of the grave. Vernon yells at them to get out. She seems really upset that they're in the grave with her. And Jack yells back at her, make me. This seems to make Vernon seem very sad, very downcast. She sort of looks down at the ground and is totally silenced by Jack yelling at her. They do decide to climb out of the grave, though. And Vernon says, find your own grave. Sorry, didn't see your name on it. Look a little closer next time. As Jack and Kenny are leaving the grave, Marshall jumps out of a nearby grave as well. And he says he didn't mean to scare them. He says the old man's stories are getting old and that they should just give it up already. He says that they should come into the grave with him because they'll never find them in there. And then he dips back down into the same grave. Just as this happens with Marshall, the old man comes up from behind Jack and he pickpockets the harmonica out of Jack's shirt. He asks, what are they doing out there? And is it just the two of them? Kenny says that they're there with their friends. And then he lists the names of all of the kids. Old man Corcoran says, That ain't very funny. All those kids are dead and buried. I dug the graves myself. While the old man is talking, Jack and Kenny have fallen to the ground. They're clearly terrified. And they have backed up against a grave. They turn, and we see the grave actually belongs to Marshall, the main boy. Marshall McLean. It says he is the beloved son of Jim and Denise. And then it gives us the date 1965 to 1978 on the stone. Jack and Kenny are shocked. And the old man says to them, what's wrong with you two? You look like you've seen a ghost. And then we cut back to the Midnight Society. And so now we have the twist that indeed all of these children were dead. And old man Corcoran, I think, I mean, he's alive, right? Is that conclusive? That yeah, I think he is. I think he's alive. Because yeah. at the very end, basically, the, the grave ends up shutting once the reveal is made. The whole, the empty grave gets full, and he's still there. He's still the same. So they made him look creepy, but he's not. And this was kind of one of the decisions we had to make doing this episode. This is going to open up a lot more analysis because now we can kind of go back and reflect from the beginning certain things that maybe kind of tipped off this twist. But without giving the twist away, in case an audience member had forgotten it, like I had, I actually forgotten about this twist. I was still kind of like, he's he's alive, right? Like, he's alive. The kids were dead. I that, that part I got. But old man Corcoran, he has to be dead, right? No, he's probably alive. So now we can kind of go into that analysis the way that we would have in the beginning, but it would have spoiled it. So we made the decision, to, as we do, as we do with the narrations, to kind of decide that maybe you haven't seen it or... Maybe it's not very memorable in your forefront of your mind that you remember the twist. And so that way you can kind of experience it the first time. And if you're a veteran and you remember the twist, you're probably going to be dedicated anyway to getting this far to hear the 
end game analysis, as I'll call it, because we can finally put some punctuation on some things and add some insight that we otherwise had to skip over. Yeah, so for me, I, I definitely remembered the twist, and it wasn't because I had rewatched this relatively recently. I actually just always remembered this episode. It's one that it's just really impactful. I thought that twist was really wild when I was a kid and I saw it for the first time. If you had asked me about this episode back in college, I would have remembered most of the main points of it even back then. So for me, watching through it this time, I I obviously knew the twist was coming and looked at it through that lens. I'm kind of curious for you then, when you did see the twist, how did that change things for you? So I'd actually seen this a couple times. Basically, I watched it just to enjoy it, then watched it back with narration and kind of then watched it back with certain parts coming together. And it really fused together a lot of different ideas and analysis about what's going on here. The first time, the twist, it was kind of, I kind of understood it from the very beginning, just based on Vernon saying some things very suspicious when first Vernon says that, well, kind of, right? Like everyone in the graveyard is dead. Well, kind of. And then bringing it to Old Man Corcoran, a little suspicious there. And kind of from that point, I kind of assumed that for whatever reason, I guess I thought in my mind based on how they dressed up Daniel Francis, that Old Man Corcoran was still dead. So that was more like a a surprise to me of piecing that part together. Yeah, I like that he's a red herring, essentially. And the story about him really was made up. And Marshall does say that it was made up. He said that the story was just something that Vernon came up with to scare them. And that tracks because he clearly didn't die in an open grave and he doesn't cut people's hands off. He's just a grave digger and he just happens to live, you know, near the cemetery and the caretaker's house or whatever. He's just a caretaker. And so Vernon spun the story and it really was intended to scare the two boys away because she didn't want them there. Well, let's, let's let's talk about this now. Let's talk about why. Why does Vernon not want them there, in your mind? Well, see, this is tough, because knowing that the kids are dead already, and then knowing the situation, I feel like the reason she doesn't want them there is that they're alive, and they remind her of the fact that she's dead, probably. It seems like these kids are sort of in denial to an extent about their fate. Because that's typically what would cause a ghost by at least conventional thinking about ghosts is that they're people that regret that, they, that they're that they dead, basically. So I feel like Vernon here just doesn't want these warm-blooded kids hanging out with them. And she definitely doesn't want them in her grave. She freaks out whenever they end up inside of the grave with her. So it's like her territory, in a sense. Did you have any other take on on what Vernon was thinking here? I'm still maybe in a dark place from Oregon Trail, but I saw Vernon as a hero here and that she was trying to save these kids. I think Marshall's plan was to kill them. I, I think he brought them there to, he keeps talking about adding to their group, adding to their group. The only way you're going to add them to their group is by killing them. And how do you do that? By these graves. So they have this whole story of Old Man Corcoran, the hide and go seek game, all about this concept of open graves to kind of scare them into hiding into an open grave. And it turns out that the only time they actually go into an open grave is in Vernon's grave. And she honestly, I saw it as she was kind of 
get out of here. Like, what are you doing? Like, she was scared. And I think that was the whole plan. I think the whole plan of all this hide and go seek and all this stuff was to get these kids in the grave so that ultimately the walls could collapse on them, a.k.a. the ghosts do something to bury them alive to then join them in their group. Because according to Marshall, remember, the more the merrier, right? More is always better. So I really saw Vernon as understanding that this was Marshall's motivation and Vernon trying to protect these kids, get them out of there at any cost because the end game is for them to join their hide-and-go-seek group permanently. Ooh, man, I don't know. So do you think, like, if Marshall was responsible for murdering them, what would be their dynamic with the group? Like, because I feel like that wouldn't work because they would be, like, acrimonious. Like, they'd be angry at, at Marshall for having murdered them, essentially. Like, would they join the group? Would they? I mean, maybe they wouldn't have a choice. Do you think they'd be, like, they're cursed, be in the group no matter what? I mean, maybe there's something about the graveyard or that area where it's sort of like a curse almost. I don't know. I'm I'm curious how that would work out. Yeah, I really see it kind of like wanting company. I mean, at some point there was one kid, maybe it was Marshall, maybe he was the OG. We don't know, know the trajectory of all the other characters. We know honestly very little about them, but we do know, yeah, at some point there would have been one kid and you know how ghost ghosting works, who knows, right? In that context. But yeah, he'd be by himself and he would be a kid. And he'd be alone in the graveyard. And imagine, who knows how long, I guess, the the years are on his tombstone. But the loneliness he would have felt as a ghost just by himself in a graveyard. Again, why is he there? Who knows? And the idea that maybe he could have more kids to be friends with, a neighborhood of kids to be friends with, is probably what he left when he had passed. Because he passed at, what, 13 years old? And so Yeah, 13. So 1978. And by the time... This episode was released in 93. We're talking 15 years later. So he's been dead longer than he was alive at this point. Yeah. And he said, the more the merrier. And so maybe he got that second kid, Ron, and he said, oh, this is cool. We have hide and go seek now with two people. We can actually play the game. You can't play hide and go seek by yourself. And But then you have one person and maybe he got used to the places that Ron was hiding. And so he's like, oh, here's another kid, Scott. And then Scott got out of the group. Now you got two kids. And then Laura comes in. Hey, Laura. And so he's adding, I mean, you know, hide and go seek. It's, it's great to have more kids to be able to play it because you have multiple hiding places. You have different seekers that maybe have different strategies. And so he's just thinking this mindset, like I'm in here in perpetuity. What do I care if more kids die and come into my group? Because I have more friends. He wants to make a neighborhood, not in the inner city or suburbia, but in this graveyard. And so getting two new kids, again, he keeps talking about them as additions. Like eventually these kids are going to grow up and move or whatever and not be a part of the group. How else can you be a part of a hide and go seek group other than dying and living in that graveyard in perpetuity? I mean, that, that has to be his motivation here. But the whole idea of these kids being here, I just, I saw Vernon very much as understanding that hey, I don't want these kids to be here. Now, again, obviously the interpretation that she just wanted to be the last one because of jealousy or whatever, I think that's obviously valid. I can't dispute that. But to me, this is something far more sinister going on here. I think Vernon does try to bait them back in whenever they're in the garage because she does the chicken thing. So like if she wanted them to stay away, she probably shouldn't have push Jack's buttons like that unless maybe she's not that smart and she didn't realize what it would cause but yeah I think typically uh I could see either way honestly and they're I think that's kind of a cool idea like 
because uh, I never thought of it as like Marshall is this sort of like, you know, mastermind behind this whole, uh, you know, neighborhood that he was engineering. And, and I think that's kind of fun to think of it like that. One thing I did want to ask you here is what's the deal with these kids being able to bike out of and leave the graveyard? Why are they able to go down the suburban streets on their bikes and talk to Jack and Kenny? Can other people see them? Like, do the adults in the community see the ghosts of these kids, you know, that are a lot of the parents are probably still living there. And then, so do they see them or, or can only Jack and Kenny see them maybe because of their age, but then can other kids see them? And then typically like you think of ghosts are like tethered to the place that they haunt. So, but they're able to travel. I don't think there's really an answer to it, but it sort of got me thinking about how far can the graveyard, can they go? They're out during the day, which is also really weird. Like, normally spirits are at night, so can they travel during the day? But then they're they're always back in the cemetery by night. I don't know. It's just, did you have any thought about, like, the rules that we're working with here or, like, the logic behind it? No, I agree with what you said. Uh, a lot of inconsistencies on that. I think, first of all, looking at the inconsistencies, number one is what you had mentioned about light and dark. So Marshall specifically says that all I can say is it gets pretty dark in there at night. And to me, darkness is not just physical, you can't see, but also maybe they can't see the true reality of what the kids are, right? Because we see once the reveal and twist is made, you see the gravestone that wasn't otherwise there. The empty grave is actually filled now and the kids disappear. And so that's a type of darkness too, where at night it might make sense that these kids could come out and you're not seeing reality. You're seeing old man Corcoran as a dead man when he's alive and you're seeing kids that are dead as very much alive. That's a different type of darkness. And all they had to do was have this happen at night and then have Marshall's line change a little bit to Let's just say it gets pretty dark here at night or in this neighborhood at night. And it could be a thing where at night you can't see reality from fiction. And that just lines up with just the concept of light and darkness in general. I think that'd be a much better way of doing it. Probably should have done it that way. The second thing is also the focus. There is this focus on the fence. Like there's a lot of scenes with this fence. They really, they have the four boundaries of a fence. And that barricade could mean the exact same type of thing where it's in the confines of reality, a square reality or a place like a purgatory, heaven, hell, something like that, where they can't branch out from it. And they set that up. That's out of bounds. And yet they just completely abandon it twice, not even just one time, but twice. And it just seems like, hey, it's more convenient to do it this way. So that's how we're going to do it. But there's no justification for it, especially, in my opinion, when it could have been done much better, just keeping with dark and you'd have all those other cool themes to it as well. One other thing, I kind of wanted to go back a little bit to the house because some cool stuff happened in there. First of all, old man Corcoran has a picture of himself, epic mustache as a young man. So that was that was the first thing you, you get to you see his <laughs> epic facial hair standing out. And then when Jack is spinning, it's this really cool shot where you had mentioned the room spinning, but yet Jack isn't. And so with the camera, if you had just spun the camera around, yes, the the room would move, but so would your perspective of Jack. It would move with the camera. So you'd be seeing his side and then his back in a circle, right? As the room changed here, 
the back of the room is moving in a circle, kind of like a carousel, but Jack isn't. And I was trying to think, okay, it's, it's kind of like a vertigo effect, but not. And I was trying to figure out, okay, how do you, as a camera person, do that? And basically the only thing I can think of, and it has to be how they did it, was you must have had the camera spinning and then Jack spinning the exact same way with the camera. So at the exact same rotational speed. So that way he looks in frame the entire time, but the back's moving. So they must have timed it where Jack was kind of spinning in a circle with the camera, but the camera was going at the exact same speed. So the only thing you really saw moving in an actual circle was the building itself, the back wall. So I thought it was really cool camera work here. Not only would Jack have had to spin the whole time, but he was also doing head shakes too. So he was spinning in a, he must've been spinning in a circle with his head shaking back and forth to, to show how insane the scene was. It must've been really hard for them to choreograph how that scene worked. And this must've been, this was before GoPro, right? Cause I think you could probably do it with a GoPro where you have a camera just angled around his waist and it's right in his face. And then he could spin around and it would do the same thing. But here, this must've been before they had an apparatus like this. Maybe they had something, some kind of rig that they could do it with. I don't know, but I just pictured, cause I don't know of one that existed at this time. I just pictured the camera person kind of keeping a steady shot and just doing a circular motion right inside with Jack. So it was a really cool scene and trying to go back and figure out if I were a cameraman, how I would do it. And that was the only way I could come to figure it out. But that's very interesting because it's really effective. It's a really effective shot because you want to see Jack's face because it shows the confusion and yet you want the background spinning because it shows just the absolute insanity of the scene going on with the music. It really disorients you. So that brings us to the Midnight Society. We are at the end. Kiki asks if anyone wants to play that dumb kids game again. Kristen immediately says, not it, followed by the rest of the Midnight Society saying, not it, not it, until Frank ends up being it. Our last bit of the episode is of Frank starting to count as everyone else scatters, and we simply end and go to credits while Frank is counting. We do not see the fire put out, despite a lot of people's memories Not every episode of the show ends with them putting out the fire. There are a good number of episodes, over 20, I believe, where the fire is not put out at the end. And this is one of them. And that ends our episode. Right off the bat here, I got you mentioned the credits. I had noticed Ron Oliver's not in the credits. So even though he put himself in the gravestone in a way, to give himself credits. He's not in that in the actual posting credits. So that's kind of strange to me that he decided to do that. But as, as much as we talked about his hubris, he then did not decide to put himself as the director of the actual episode. So it's very interesting and kind of cool, actually, when you think about it, that he put his credit in a way there and it was kind of hidden for the viewer. Yeah, that's really strange. I don't know what he was thinking exactly, but it's cool. So I'll give him credit for that. You would think he'd want credit. I mean, this is a pretty good job, pretty good directing job here. So Kiki at the end doing a pretty good job of reigniting the Midnight Society's interest in hide and seek. And the whole thing where everyone has to say, not it, not it, not it. That was like a staple of a lot of random games when you were a kid, you know, whoever had the slowest reflexes, basically touch your nose. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So that, that sort of brought me back just to that idea. 
but overall here, a pretty short ending. I'm a little surprised that Frank is the guy that is last, you know, the tough guy in the group. He ends up being the last one. An important note for the show, this was the end of season two. It ends up being the last appearance of both Kristen and David. So their families, according to Gary, will have moved away in season three. And so we will no longer have them as part of the Midnight Society. Well, it seems like Frank forgot to call shotgun quick enough. <laughs> and he knows the ramifications. That is true. Of, of doing so because he's he's stuck here. And this is, to me, like the Hunger Games of <laughs> hide and go seek, especially with the rules where you chase people. I mean, you're, you're going in a pitch black woods playing hide and go seeks bad enough. And then you're going to be doing it like a tag drill. I mean, I, I'm just thinking of all the ways you could trip, fall, break ankles. I mean, this just sounds absolutely brutal. So I would not say playing hide-and-go-seek in the woods at night is by any means a kid's game. I mean, this is something as an adult I would stay away from. Not, I mean, I would even touch this. Definitely too afraid to do that. So the Midnight Society, I mean, they're daredevils. You know, I mean, they're they're out there in the woods at midnight doing their thing. And I guess... The Midnight Society, they go hard, you know, and that's all there is to it. All in all, I I enjoyed this episode. I I love the creepy themes behind it. It's very much, I think the ending was, clearly it was made for that ending in mind. And so it's a little gimmicky in the sense that pretty much that's the whole episode. There's a lot that we don't really know about the actual ghosts and characters and whatnot, but it's a really effective twist. That alone, I think, justifies it. Some creepy elements, but mostly the twist just stands out to me. I I didn't really, I didn't think Old Man Corcoran was as scary as a lot of the other stuff we've covered, a lot of the monsters and villains we've covered. I mean, the worst line we get is that he wants his harmonica back, you know, in the house when he has the flashlight on his face. It's a little scary, but definitely nothing even like Dead Man's Float and anything like that, that I felt he was in the upper echelon of, of villains and scares. What did you think? I don't know. I think that I think that undersells him a little bit. I I thought that the thing that made him really scary was his paleness, the setting of where he's at, and especially the axe because he has that axe with him quite a lot. And you were told this story about him cutting off hands, and the whole time Jack is trying to steal that harmonica, you can just kind of imagine him cutting his hand off while he's trying to steal it. So. I um no I I think I think he's he's pretty effective and he's not even actually a villain really he's a red herring of a villain because the real there isn't really a villain at all uh, unless you view Marshall as the villain but it's really just this twist of them being ghosts so I like what they did with him yeah he's definitely not a villain in the traditional sense because he is like you said a red herring but in terms of the actual feelings while we don't know that yet didn't really strike me as scary. You'd mentioned the axe, and, and this is something I hadn't mentioned, but the whole time with the axe, it never connected with me. I kept thinking it should be a shovel. Instead, they went with he dug with his hands instead of the shovel. I think it would have been far more horrifying and better with a shovel. Maybe that's a little bit too grotesque to imagine, but that would have fit more than the axe. I didn't understand the whole wood cutting and whatnot, considering he was a grave digger. So it just didn't fit in terms of a villain. I want to associate the ghost or whatever I'm supposed to be scared of with their surroundings and basically an an axe wielding 
gravekeeper that just looks pale to me wasn't something that I could connect. I couldn't imagine that being in a, a video game of sorts where you're where you're being scared. I'm thinking like Dead by Daylight or something like that. That's not a monster that I'd be like, oh, he's iconic because the whole time I'm like a grave digger with an axe doesn't really connect with me at all. Yeah, I don't know. I thought the axe was pretty good. Um, I mean, because he lives there. It's, he's at his house. He's just chopping wood. I don't think it's related to his job at all, but I don't think it necessarily has to be. Um, so on IMDb, this was rated an 8.1 out of 10, about 883 votes on this one. So that's the standard we have on the Internet Movie Database. This one's pretty nostalgic. I remember it pretty strongly from watching it as a kid. I thought it was really scary back then, especially with the graveyard setting and the fog. And I thought the old man was pretty effective. So honestly, I'd probably give it a higher grade myself. Probably give it a nine would be my score on that one. Really only docking it for some of the inconsistencies with the logic, with how the ghosts work. Uh, That was the thing that bothered me the most um, about them being able to go out during the daytime and all that stuff, bike out into the neighborhood. Didn't make a ton of sense in that regard. And I would have liked a little bit more of the other characters, maybe how they ended up there, anything like that. Just the vibe, the atmosphere is so good on this one that I think it's very effective. I think it's a reasonable take. I mean, I'd probably give it 8.8, something like that. B plus range. I agree with you about the ghosts. I think they really, instead of focusing so much on them, just like walking around, playing hide and seek and at the house and running away and even just... And again, I I was not scared of Old Man Corcoran. Even those types of things where they were trying to build suspense didn't really work for me. And we've seen a lot of dark episodes where they do build that suspense. If they just would have focused on the characters, the other kids' personalities, and things about their lives, when that twist hits, you'd say, oh, oh my gosh. And you could go and say, this happened and this happened, right? So if maybe, I don't know, for example, if someone's like, oh yeah, I remember the last, you know, my favorite thing to do is I like to go swimming. You're like, oh, maybe this person drowned. And you can go down the list of different things about stories of their lives where it would have an innocuous meaning. But then once the twist is revealed, you could go back and say, oh, that makes more sense. Or, oh, wow, that's really terrible what happened. Anything like that. You know, I remember I love traveling on airplanes or I love being in a boat and things like that. We used to always go on cruises as a kid, anything like that where you could go back. Because really, you just have the scenes with basically Vernon that you can go back and say, oh, that's kind of cool. Those couple scenes where, you know, Vernon's like, oh, yeah, you know, people in the graveyard are dead, kind of. And talking about how this is my gravestone. You just didn't look hard enough, stuff like that. It would have been really cool to have more behind the characters so we could go back and connect with the twist as opposed to these generalized, deeper themes. But it seems like they were obviously trying to bring that out. doesn't really tie in at the end, though, so I don't, I don't know. I, I really wanted that because that would have made the twist that much more satisfying to me. Yeah, that's a good rewrite. Those are some good notes. We should definitely share those with the assorted members of the cast whenever we have them on the show. So for for the one question that we want to ask each of them, it'd be pretty good. Yeah, it's always easy to have hindsight. Obviously, you know, they created a, a brilliant thing and we could be we could be critics of it, but obviously it works to an extent. And there are some cool things to theorize about making it better. But again, I, being able to 
review it in full after everything's been written, directed, put together. We have that, we have that privilege to be able to do that and kind of go back and say, oh yeah, that'd be kind of cool. And, and who knows, you know, maybe when we bring them on the show, you know, we could bring up <laughs> these, uh, these different themes and whatnot with them and, and kind of have a, have a back and forth to see. And they'll probably agree. Like, yeah, I probably would have, you know, in retrospect after 30 years, having written this, maybe that would have been a good <laughs> alternative, but something that uh, they were not privy to at the time when this was created. All right, guys. Well, I think that was a pretty awesome journey through old man Corcoran. We hit a lot of cool topics and we played a little hide and seek. It was spooky at times, but overall a fun time as well. And I think we're also going to have a very fun time in our next Are You Afraid of the Dark episode when we tackle Cutter's Treasure, which is actually a two-part episode. So this is going to be a big deal for our Halloween content. It'll be coming at you in the month of October. So get ready for the next time when we return to the 1990s. Follow us on Patreon and Instagram at the Nostalgic Millennial Podcast. Our Patreon offers access to special posts, a Discord server, and bi-weekly exclusive episodes. Spend time with us there until our next new episode when we return to the 1990s.